And if you'd have your Bibles open to Isaiah 53, keep some kind of marker there and then turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to begin and then we'll end up in Isaiah 53. Luke 24 records the first events of the resurrection. The first day of the week for a Jew is Sunday. Their Sabbath is Saturday. And so here we have these few Jewish women who've been following the rabbi Jesus around. The Sabbath has ended and so they have gotten up early on what we think of as Sunday morning. And... They have seen Christ crucified, and now they're making their way back to the tomb to finish the burial process. The women arrive and encounter an empty tomb with two angels. Understandably, the text says that they were perplexed. And in the Greek, this means there was no way out. In their mind, they came to this empty tomb, and nothing in their mind could help them think about how or why Christ wasn't in this tomb. So they were perplexed. And the angels provided the answer, the one answer that would have never crossed the minds of these women, and the answer in which all of Christianity hinges on this statement. And we've already said it today, He has risen. Jesus Christ has done what no one has accomplished. He died. He was buried. And He walked out of the grave. You see, there are billions of footprints across all of human history that lead into the tomb, but there's only one set of footprints that actually lead out of the tomb. And so we stand here today thinking about this incredible claim. It's incredible for us to think about it today. It was just as incredible for the women and the disciples in the early church to think about Jesus Christ actually coming from the tomb alive in bodily form. And the angels look at the women. They see that they're perplexed and they point to these two things. They're looking at the women They see that they're perplexed. They can't figure out how Christ got out. And they say, first, he's not here. They point to an experience. You're standing here. Look around. He's not here. Your eyes are not deceiving you. And then they do a second thing. They give an explanation. Verse chapter 24, verse 6 and 7 says this, verse 6, Remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. You see, the experience of the empty tomb alone was not sufficient. Experience alone is never sufficient. Because they could come to the empty tomb and experience the empty tomb, and they could draw all kinds of conclusions, many of them which wouldn't be right. So, the angel gives them an explanation. But notice, the explanation isn't something brand new. The angel points back to something that's already been said. 
And we'll see that it's been said in the Old Testament, but they're pointing back specifically to when Christ, when he was alive, he said this was going to happen. And the angels are just trying to bring to mind what the women have already heard. Luke chapter 22. I'm sorry. Luke chapter nine, verse 22. Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. So the women have an experience. They have an explanation. And then they run back to tell the disciples what has happened. They tell them their experience. The tomb is empty. And then they recall for them what the disciples have heard as well. And that's that Jesus said he was going to be raised to life. And he has indeed. And I want you to notice that the women move from the empty tomb to a crowded room and what they encounter first in the crowded room are the first skeptics to the resurrection. Verse 11, the disciples look at the women and it seems like an idle tale or nonsense what they're saying. This is a medical term that means hysteria or they're delirious. So these women, uh, women, they're like this. They get hysteric, hysterical. This is just a common condition, especially after they've lost somebody they love so much and they're delirious or they're hysterical. It wouldn't be any different if you and I had seen it. It would sound hysterical. It would sound like we're delirious. And so the skepticism of the resurrection isn't anything new. In fact, the first skeptics were the founders of the church. The first skeptics were the founders of the church. That's the disciples. However, I think today being a skeptic seems very advanced or contemporary. Uh, as if we've sort of come a long way now, Paul, from 2000 years ago, and we have sort of some advanced information I think that comes in at least a couple of different ways. That kind of thinking comes from a couple of different ways. One is the incredible amount of information out now. You probably read just the newspaper this week or you saw it on television. uh, The recently discovered Gospel of Judas. There's several programs on it. It was a front page article about a week and a half ago in the Star News. According to this Gospel account, Jesus actually instructed Judas To betray him. So Judas ends up being a good guy in the gospel of Judas. Maybe that wouldn't be surprising. And he's given Jesus has given Judas this very secret information. Judas, I want you to betray me. I need to die in order to get out of this physical, materialistic universe, which is evil and get into the divine spiritual reality. And so Judas is actually seen as helping Jesus out of the physical world into a divine spiritual world. If Jesus is trying to get out of the physical world, then, of course, he doesn't need to be resurrected bodily. And so many people I've heard talk about this, that Jesus sort of rose, but just he rose in their minds. He, he rose in a spiritual sense. He didn't rise bodily. Nobody really touched him. It was sort of like a dream that you feel like the dream was real, but he really didn't come out of the tomb. 
We get this kind of information from the Gospel of Thomas. A lot of it is written uh, from the Da Vinci Code, which you're going to continue to hear more and more about. And so it sort of seems contemporary now. Gosh, we have all these competing ideas about who Jesus is. And, And suddenly, because we've lived in this very privileged age, we've gotten this new information. And so it's sort of contemporary or advanced now to question the resurrection. That's one reason, I think. Another reason, I think, is the rise of Islam. Although it began in the 7th century in the Middle East, obviously in our culture, the conversation about Islam has dramatically increased since 9-11. The Koran clearly states this. The Koran, which was written in the 7th century, A.D. states that Jesus Christ was not crucified. And I quote, they said that we slew the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God. They did not slay him, neither crucify him, only a likeness of what was shown to them. So Christ, if you're a Muslim, was not actually crucified. It seemed as if he was, but he wasn't. And there's a couple of different explanations. One of the explanations is that Thomas got, or Judas got substituted, which is a bit of a bummer if you're a believer of the gospel. Judas, suddenly you got crucified instead of you, you were the good guy. And so we have these conflicting ideas in our culture. We hear about them all the time. We read about them all the time. They're on our television sets. They're in our newspaper. And so we have skeptics today, just as we did 2,000 years ago. Because Jesus Christ was not crucified, he only seemed to be crucified, certainly there was no reason for a bodily resurrection if you're a Muslim. And therefore, what's at the very center of the gospel is false. I want you to notice chapter, uh, chapter 24 still in verse 12. Peter rose to investigate. Peter's standing there, and maybe he's thinking these things, but at least in the text it says he rose to investigate, which, if you're a skeptic, is my encouragement to you. Peter, maybe I'm reading into it, seems to be a little slower to discount what had happened. I wonder why. You see, the women had come back and said, Jesus said this. Remember, he said it. And my guess is Peter Peter could say, yes, I remember him saying that. And now Peter's a little less, a little more hesitant to just say the women are hysterical. Why is that? Well, because he can remember when Jesus said something else. That came true. About Peter. Peter. You're going to deny me. And Peter, who thought that couldn't possibly be so, finds himself weeping bitterly at his denial of Christ. And so now when he goes back and says, well, now Christ said that, I'm a little less hesitant. And so he goes to the tomb. He arrives at the tomb. He sees that it's empty. And he walks away. The end of this verse Wondering what had happened. Now, with all the controversies that are surrounding the gospel accounts, 
I'd like to answer that question, what has happened, by going back 700 years before the life of Christ into Isaiah 53. Isaiah obviously was not written after the Gospels, so they hadn't, Isaiah had no agenda to try to prove something that was inaccurate or have, have an agenda to rewrite or destroy or distort what the Gospels were saying. And so we are reading Isaiah, and when we look at Isaiah 53, we're going to see that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was not a myth, it wasn't a mistake. What was recorded in the Gospels actually happened. And all the common views now that this Gospel is just one of many equally valid accounts of Jesus' life, that the Gospels that we have now are just part of a fourth century political struggle, or the Gospels were written and accepted in order to continue to oppress women. Those are all commonly held views that you could read in the newspaper today. Those are not true. And so we're going to look back at Isaiah. Hopefully we're going to have some confirmation for those who are believers. And if you're here as a skeptic or you're a seeker, you're thinking about it, you want to go back and say, well, this was written 700 years beforehand. And we're going to look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 now is often referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament. And when we look at this section, which actually begins in chapter 42, verse 13, and goes through 53, verse 12, it's kind of like looking at Mount Everest. We're, we're just going to stand back and sort of make some observations of Mount Everest. There's a lot to discover. There are a lot of little uh, vistas or scenery that we're going to just pass by. But just in the course of just this one sermon, we're going to stand back and look at Isaiah 53 and just marvel at how it talks about what the Gospels talk about in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So here we go. Here are our observations. The first observation is our current condition is described in Isaiah 53. Our. Our current condition is described in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here we are. This is the picture Isaiah is drawing for everyone. Notice all we like sheep, everyone to his own way. He's trying to help everybody see it's everybody here. And as cute as a sheep might seem to be to you, it's not an animal that you want to be compared to. Sheep are very dumb animals. And so a sheep, if you don't aren't careful about them eating, they'll just keep focused on the grass in front of them. Until they walk right over a cliff to their death. They're so focused on eating and feeding themselves that they'll walk off a cliff to their own death. They just don't lift up their heads very often to look around. And you may know somebody like that. So focused on what's happening in their life right now, and they're walking right off a cliff and they don't even know it. A sheep, when it gets heavy with wool, will get itchy. And just like you might have a dog that likes to lay on its back and scratch its back, when it gets heavy with wool, it scratches its back by laying on it, but the wool begins to flatten out and then it can't get back over. 
and it starts kicking its legs until it actually has a paralyzing effect. And then you have a lamb or a sheep that's laying on its back and can't move. It's completely paralyzed because it's trying to satisfy something of its own accord. And some of us find ourselves in this situation. We're, we're thinking, oh, this is really going to help. And then we end up, end up get, getting paralyzed. So we all are like sheep. We're paralyzed and we need somebody to come and help us. And we'll see that that's the servant. Look at verse 3. One more description for ourselves. Because we are like sheep. Verse 3. He, the servant who is Christ, was despised and rejected by men. We have gone our own way and the servant has come and we have rejected him and despised him. Now, in the Hebrew here, there's not really so much emotion like we would think of the word despised. There, there's an emotional content to that. It's more of just um, apathy. We just don't care to know the servant. We just don't think he's worth our attention. We're just too busy and we just need to and want to go our own way to really give Jesus any real time. I think this was clear to me with the conversation. I may have said it to you before. I'm having this conversation with a guy and he said at one point that he was he believed in God, at least. And then we were having lunch. He said, well, I don't believe in God anymore. And we talked a little bit about that. And he said, but I still pray. So I was thinking, okay, you don't believe in God, but you still pray. So I asked this question, the question you would ask, <laughs> who are you praying to? And here was his response. Myself. You see, he just disregarded God to the degree that he still prayed he needed some outside help, and he saw the answer to his help as himself. That's the condition that we're in without Christ. We're paralyzed. We, we're living as if all that matters is right here and right now, and nothing else matters. Well, fortunately, Isaiah describes a servant who has come, and that's the second thing, observation we want to make. Look at Isaiah 50, uh, 52, verse 12. This is a word that's said a number of times in the Old Testament, and Isaiah says it here. Behold. In Isaiah, the word behold is in the, in the book over 100 times. Behold. Pay attention. Look at this. And here he's saying, pay attention to the servant. If you're in the condition that I've just described you in, and somebody has come to help you out of that condition, then you need to pay attention. Don't miss the servant. Behold the servant. All eyes now on the servant. But notice in 53, verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, in Apparently, in order to see Jesus, you're going to have to look and keep looking. When you see Jesus in a glimpse, 
you may completely miss him. This servant who has come is somebody who can easily be mistaken as a nobody. And Isaiah is saying, look, you can easily miss the servant. So pay attention. Don't miss him. And I think that's a particular problem in our culture because we're so easily satisfied with superficial. We're just sort of star crazy. You notice particularly around Wilmington, if there's a set being done somewhere down the street or a walkway, you're just always craning around to see if well, maybe you can get a glimpse of the of the star and, and seeing the star somehow. Wow. And then what do you do? You run home and you tell everybody, guess who I saw? Like that somehow changes your life. You just saw the person. But see, we're so easily satisfied with the superficial, it's possible to miss the Savior. C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And this is how he describes us. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, and sex, and ambition, when infinite joy is offered, like an ignorant child who goes on wanting to make mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer at a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You see, the splendor of Jesus Christ is not on the surface. And I'm concerned that people come to church hoping to sort of get a glimpse and they miss him. I'm concerned that we're easily captured by the next dollar that we have to make, an exam, clothes, career, the latest gossip, your lawn, your body, somebody else's body. All of those things can grab your attention and become that's the most important thing. And while you have your eyes focused on those things, you eat yourself right off a cliff. I talk with quite a few people and I have lunch with them or maybe it's a conversation right after church. And there's this there's this immediate moment of desire. But they walk away from the conversation. And they don't pursue. The, the, the busyness of the world is too much to behold the Savior. And so Isaiah is doing everything he can to say, pay attention, you're in a bad situation. And behold, a servant has come. And I don't want you to miss this. One reason that we should behold the servant is because he has come to die. Isaiah 53 says this clearly and to die on our behalf. Let's look together. Verse seven, the servant has come to die. He was like a lamb. That is led to slaughter. Verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. Verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked. He didn't just seem to die. He actually did die. The servant came and he died. 700 years before the gospel accounts were written. 1300 years before the Koran was written. The Bible clearly states that Jesus Christ came And he died. 
And let's look at what his death accomplished. Now, when you read over this, it's like a um, you can't you can't miss it in this passage because Isaiah just keeps piling on one term after another. So you clearly understand what Christ's death actually accomplished for you. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs. Verse four, he carried our sorrows. Verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. Verse six, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse eight, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sins of of many. If you've ever wondered what's at the core of Christianity, here it is. It's stated ten times. Jesus Christ has come. All of humanity has rejected God. We've set ourselves up as king. We find ourselves like sheep. We've fallen. We're on our back. We're completely paralyzed. And we need somebody to come and help us. And Christ has demonstrated, God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still in this condition, Christ died for us. He bore our griefs. Notice that in verse four. We can't talk about all this, but Christ has come and he has borne our griefs. He is wearing them. He's owning them. On the cross, you might remember that Jesus cried out, it is finished. It's an accounting term. The debt has been canceled. Jesus's death cancels our eternal debt. When I was in college, my mother took out a loan. I think it was my junior, senior year. She took it out in her name. But then two years after graduation, guess who got to start paying on it? The graduate. And so she takes out this loan and I, I don't really even remember quite the amount, six or seven thousand dollars, maybe more. And she says, Paul, two years after you graduate, you have to begin paying this off. What a joy it was to learn that. What a thrill. And so I'm learning this. I'm going, OK, I'm thinking about it. A year after I graduate, my mother died. And I wish I had kept the letter that said this, because of the death of your parent, your debt has been canceled. If you want a letter today, here it is. Because of the death of Jesus Christ, your debt has been canceled. It has been obliterated. He, by his blood, has absorbed it. And so now you can stand before God, the Father Almighty, the Holy One. And there is no now, there is now no condemnation. You know, I think sometimes people think this, but I just don't feel like I need Christ. I don't feel like I'm in the kind of terrible position that maybe you might be describing. And I would just say this. I don't think if you're honest with yourself, you can even maintain your own standards of morality. Don't own the Bibles. 
Most of us wouldn't want to be liars, but have you ever lied? Most of us wouldn't want to be adulterers, but have you ever looked at somebody in lust? Most of us don't want to be known as gossips, but have you ever gossiped? Whatever standards you hold up for yourself, they don't even have to be biblical standards. You can't own them to yourself. So imagine what it would feel like to stand before Almighty God. And Christ has come to bear that, to pay that, to absorb that. So now you can stand in front of God Almighty and there now is no condemnation. You can boldly enter before the King. Finally, I want us to behold the servant who has come back to life. Let's look at verse 10. Because of the servant's willingness to make his soul an offering for sin, a, a, the word we like to use is a substitution. He has taken my place. He has taken your place. Now look what follows in verse 10. He shall see his offspring. The death of the servant means life for many people. One of those people is me. If, if you're here saying, I have life because of the death of Christ, woo! Yes! That's why we're standing here today saying, He has risen indeed. His death has actually caused life for me. He shall prolong his days. Once the death has been conquered, the servant can never be defeated. He lives on forever. The, the, the life now of the servant, the days are prolonged forever in order that the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. The will of the Lord shall continue to advance. Well, that's what the word prosper means. The will of the Lord now is going to continue to advance because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. All that the Lord wants to accomplish now comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone because he uniquely took away the sins of the world by his death on the cross and he proved who he was by his resurrection. Therefore, verse 12, and this describes this uh, a sort of a military parade. There's the spoils that are coming and, and I'm trying to. Get this picture of, of, a, of a commander or a general or an army that's defeated this terrible foe. And they come back to this great parade. And as they see the people coming, as they see the soldiers coming, people begin to sort of gather on the sides of the, sides of the street saying, Are we free? Did you beat the enemy? Did you conquer the enemy? And that's the picture that Isaiah is trying to get for us here. The, the person has come back and he is beaten the enemy. And there's all kind of spoils for those who have come out to embrace the king who has returned. I tried to think about what this must have looked like. And this was the only picture I could come up with. And it's a picture most of you have probably seen before. It, even if you're not old enough to remember it, many of you wouldn't be. You remember in war, World War II when... Uh, the troops returned. There were quite a few parades in New York City. And there's a very famous picture of a parade in New York City. 
And somebody captured this moment in the parade. You remember what it was? It was that kiss. Do you remember it? Where the sailor had the woman and they were kind of in a position I would hurt if I got into right now. And you remember, because if you've ever seen the picture, you couldn't possibly get out of your mind. Because you think, what a kiss. I mean, it was just passion and, and joy and freedom. And I mean, just all kinds of things in this one picture. And you keep staring at it. You're going, it's incredible. And all the, the passion that all the evil has been conquered. And now we're free is in this picture. But I want you to know, it's not just a sailor who comes to give you a kiss. The king. The king has stopped the parade to come and find you and to give you a kiss of joy and passion and freedom. Does anybody want this kind of embrace? Here it is. It comes because Jesus Christ walks out of the tomb. And if you'd like to line up as he comes out and just hold out your arms, he's ready for that kind of embrace. Joy, freedom, passion, life like you've never imagined. If you're here as a believer, my hope for you in reading Isaiah 53 and seeing how it confirms what's written 700 years now in advance, will help you believe that what the Gospels have to say is true. So when you encounter a skeptic, or when you encounter the newspaper, or the National Geographic channel, you understand there's something more to it than what I'm just getting from the Gospel of Thomas. If you've come as a skeptic, it's okay to be a skeptic. Peter, Paul... All the great evangelists in the early church, they were all skeptics. I hope that this causes you to think and to do what Peter did and just investigate the truth about the reality of Jesus Christ overcoming death so that we might have life.